Let me offer a word of prayer. God, thank you for what we've already received, and thank you for what we will receive. Uh, break your word open for us, Lord. Help us to see uh, you in the midst of our lives, in the midst of our world, in the midst of our country. Uh, help us to see how you have set us apart and what all of that means. So bless Dr. Neff as he uh, has prepared for this moment. Uh, help us to, um, to listen and to learn. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. Thank you for those of you who have come back. That's encouraging to me. And to those who have joined us, welcome. We'll do the best we can here to try to get you caught up before we, before we launch. But first, uh, we have a problem. Uh, the camp has invited uh, folks. They, they seem to focus on gray-haired old men. And so, I look too much alike. And at first it was kind of funny. I took a lot of accolades for his Sunday night sermon and said, hey, yeah, that's okay. You, you really did good. And I said, well, thank you. I thought I did. You know, that kind of stuff. And, and, then, and then it began to get a little more difficult. Somebody bought a book from him yesterday, and uh, he didn't write a book. Those books are mine. So he said to me at breakfast this morning, I think I owe you six bucks. But now even Dave... Now even Dave's getting mixed up. He drank my water at the break. He doesn't know who he is. <laughs> so, you know, we got we to gotta get some of these folks straightened out. Yesterday we talked a little bit. I hope what we established, if nothing else, is that something is happening in America. There's a change going on. And I like to phrase it this way. I don't like what's happening, but I like to phrase it this way. I believe that mainstream traditional Christianity, evangelical Christianity, if you will, is being marginalized. And it seemed to me, as I listened to you toward the end of our hour, that there was pretty much agreement about that. Uh, I know from some studies and from talking to some folks on the grounds later and so on, that we don't all agree about the evidences of that. Some say, well, that's not really a clear evidence of that, uh, and others see different evidence. But for, for the large part, I think, we agree that there's this, this shift that's taking place in American culture, that we're being marginalized, that evangelical Christianity is being marginalized. I'm not the only one who's saying that, of course. Uh, I'm not the only one who's seeing that or the only one who's putting that in biblical terms. Uh, and I want to introduce you to some of the resources that I have used. Uh, I've got one copy of each of these, and I've got the price on it that I paid for it. If you want them, that's fine. If you don't, you can get all this stuff on Amazon. You can get my books on Amazon as well. But uh, one of them uh, is called Good Faith. And it's, uh, it's by uh, Kinnaman and Lyons. And th they, one of the things that really stuck with me in this book, it's just amazing what people in our culture are seeing as extremism. Uh, for example, if you give 10% uh, regularly to your church, you're an extremist. Uh, there's, there's the data for that. So this is kind of a uh, social studies, social science kind of a, of a book. Uh, a, an easier read, more of a layman's read perhaps, is a book by uh, Paul Nyquist, J. Paul Nyquist, who is the president of Moody Bible College, and he wrote this. It's called Prepare, Living Your Faith in an Increasingly Hostile Culture, and I used a good bit of his stuff in the pre preparation of this seminar, so I recommend uh, Nyquist. I have uh, one uh, eh, bone to pick with him. I'll talk about a little bit later in the session today one place where he, he comes to a conclusion or uses some terminology I just don't agree with, but uh, we'll talk about that. 
And then a book uh, that also is a part of the presentation today called The Great Evangelical Recession. If you haven't read this, I highly recommend this book by Dickerson. John Dickerson writes of uh, what he sees happening in America and what's going to happen in our local churches if we're not careful. Then I want you to know, uh, so that you don't find me out and say, ah, oh, look what he's done, that I attend, uh, when I'm home in Marion, Nancy and I attend College Wesleyan Church. And uh, about a year and a half ago, two years ago now, uh, Steve Deneff, who's our pastor, just an excellent, 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 gifted preacher. Am I right? Some of you, how many have heard Steve Deneff preach? You know, if he's preaching within 100 miles, you ought to take an evening and go to the camp meeting where he's preaching. It's excellent stuff. Steve was saying from the pulpit uh, that he was preparing a sermon, uh, and I don't remember his terminology, but the kind of stuff you and I were talking about yesterday, the, that, that American uh, evangelicals were being marginalized and we were becoming a remnant and so on. And uh, I immediately, because I was working on this seminar, I immediately made an appointment, said, let's have lunch. And we sat down together and compared notes. I wanted him to be sure that I wasn't just borrowing his stuff, that we were, our minds were working the same direction. His mind's a whole lot ahead of mine and a whole lot higher than mine, but they were in the same direction. Well, he preached that series then, and I brought a copy of the, of the uh, CD, the DVD. I don't know, those little round things. Anyway, CDs, DVDs, whatever it is, you check it out. You can also get those online. Can't get those at Amazon, but you can get them at uh, collegewesleyanchurch.org, I believe it is. Or here's a copy that I'll, I'll say. Then we're going to talk about, uh, some of you objected yesterday to my uh, uh, approach to the Obergefell versus Hodge ruling. Uh, so let me ask you this. How do you feel about the Chief Justice Supreme Court? In his opinions, uh, Judge Roberts has written a dissenting opinion to that, and these are marked just because of the copy costs. You can get that online. Just punch it up, and it'll, it'll come up, and you can read what the Chief Justice and a couple of other justices said. And also, just copies, uh, we're going to talk about the Martin Gaskell case toward the end of the hour today, and uh, this is the article that we'll be talking about, Modern Astronomy, the Bible, and Creation. Cost him a job, as you'll see in just a little bit. Uh, in First Chronicles chapter 12, verse 32, uh, we find David calling uh, the tribes of Israel to send each tribe, to send people in order that they might go to battle against the Philistines. And he says a word there about each one of the tribes as they sent, how many they sent, why they sent them, who they sent, and so on. But here's what I want you to see. Of the men of Issachar, he said, these were men, listen to the words, who understood the times and knew what Israel should do. What I tried to do yesterday was to see if I could get for us a, a, a an agreement about the times. And what I want to do beginning this morning and through the rest of our time together through the camp is to say, here's one model of what we should do. I think we pretty well agree on the times. Just so we get the terminology right, I encourage you to page five in the little program book, and let me just note the terminology. When I talk about the marginalization Page five in your book has got the definition. It is what I'm thinking of 
is the systematic elimination of the voice and views of evangelical Christians from mainstream culture. I think we established yesterday, and I think you all agree, or many of you do at least, that's happening. Now, by the way, when I wrote here systematic elimination, I'm not talking about some kind of conspiracy theory. I don't, I don't buy conspiracy theories at all. I don't think so a bunch of folks sat down and said, let's get rid of the Christians. No, it's just the natural outgrowth of where we're going as a culture. Uh, the God of tolerance is taking the place of the God of love. Is in reality, is what's happening. And so that marginalization, the elimination of, of the evangelical worldview is happening. We are being pushed to the fringes, pushed to the edges. Uh, we're not mainstream anymore. What do I mean, and I don't suppose I need to spend a lot of time with, that, uh, with this here, but just so we're all on the same page, what do I mean about an evangelical Christian? At a minimum, at a minimum, there are whole kinds of definitions, okay? Uh, every author you read is going to give you a little different definition, but here's what I mean at a minimum. It's people who believe that the Bible is God's word and without error and all that it affirms. Do you believe that? Good. And who believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation. I, I really like, I, I tried to do this as general as I could because I get a lot of invitation a lot of different kind of places. I really think there's more to it than that. In my heart there is. Uh, it's about a personal relationship with Jesus rather than a, uh, a, 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 a yeah, yeah, it, you know, it's, a, it's a, a personal relationship with Christ rather than more of the orthodox kind of, uh, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of Jesus, and all that, okay? But this, this will work for our purposes. You believe the Bible is God's word and without error, you believe that Jesus is the only way to salvation, then I'm calling you an evangelical Christian. Amen? Everybody in that camp? If not, we'll get saved here before camp's over and move on. <laughs> now this morning I want to introduce another term, and this will be the term that we'll use throughout. A remnant. The Bible uses the term remnant. A remnant, for our purposes, are those evangelical Christians who persist in their beliefs even after being marginalized. You believe a lot of stuff other than or beyond just the stuff that I laid out for you, uh, the, the faith in the Scripture, faith in Christ. You believe in other kinds of things. And those who persist in those beliefs that have been mainstream traditionally in America, even as they're being marginalized, I'm referring to as a remnant. And so my guess is that there are many, many people in this room who are will be, are rapidly becoming a remnant. You're not going to give up your beliefs even if the culture moves away from you. And what we want to do over the course of these four days that, are, that remain is talk about how do, we, how do we make a difference? How do we make a difference? First, this morning, let's talk about what I call the temptations of the remnant. Many of you are aware of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. You know him as a continental theologian, theologian that grew out of the Second World War. If you're not familiar with the story of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I recommend a book. Eric Metaskis wrote a biography of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. It's just excellent. Opened my eyes to all kinds of things that were going on in this guy's life. Uh, Eric Metaskis is the guy that wrote uh, Seven Great Men and the Secret to Their Greatness, I think. Uh, seven Great Women and the Secret to Their Greatness. The guy's just a gifted author. But his biography of Dietrich Bonhoeffer is powerful, powerful stuff. 
Dietrich Bonhoeffer was, uh, led the opposition as the Nazi regime grew in Germany prior to the First World War. And in June of 1939, he came to the United States. Now, it's interesting how he came. The church that he was pastoring and from which he was uh, sharing his resistance movement, leaders in the church arranged his passage to America. They said to Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, the times have changed such that your life is in danger and we want you to lead the resistance movement from America. It's much safer. And so they arranged for him a teaching position at Union Theological Seminary in New York. Dietrich Bonhoeffer came across in 1939, just prior to the beginning of the Second World War, and settled into a cushy teaching job, teaching at Union Theological Seminary in a safe place, New York City. But in just a few months, he came to an interesting conclusion, and he wrote that conclusion in his journal. He said, I've came to the conclusion that I made a mistake in coming to America. I must live through this with the people of Germany. And so Bonhoeffer arranged passage on what turned out to be the last ship that uh, came across the Atlantic or went across the Atlantic to Germany prior to the outbreak of hostilities. He went back and he continued to lead the resistance movement as the Nazis grew in power and authority and barbarism. He continued to speak out against them and he was ultimately imprisoned for his outspokenness. He lived out the war in prison. He was, by the way, process this for a little bit. He, we now know that he was at one point during the war part of a group of people who plotted the assassination of Adolf Hitler. Now, you know, process that in terms of your, uh, your theology of life and death and what you think ought to be from a pastor and a theologian and so on. Uh, I submit to you, uh, you know, I, I can deal with it, but it's tough. It's not where, where my mind immediately goes. But he continued, and as a result of his efforts, he was hung uh, at the prison where he had lived the last several years of his life, just prior to liberation on April 9th, 1945. Bonhoeffer died in prison at the hands of the Nazis. But I want to take you back to that time in 1939 when Bonhoeffer is faced with living and teaching in New York and leading the resistance movement, or going back to Germany and standing against the Nazi regime and leading a resistance movement. Can you imagine the temptations that he must have felt to take what would look to me like the easy way out? Can you imagine the overwhelming temptation to say, I, I can lead the people's resistance from here and I'm not any good to them if I'm dead. And so I'm going to stay right here and teach my classes at the seminary and at the same time lead the resistance. Well, there are also, as, and I'm not comparing what's happening in America to Nazi Germany. Please hear me on that. I'm not, and I'll say more about that in a little bit. But as the changes come in our culture, there are some temptations for us that aren't totally unlike 
the temptations that Bonhoeffer must have experienced. And what I'd like to do to kind of set the stage for our discussion uh, this morning is to suggest five temptations that, that are in front of us right now as we look at being marginalized and what it might mean to us. I want to respond to each of those five, and then I want you to respond to the five in terms of how you see them, and we want to look to a case study uh, the Martin Gaskell case, the case of the potentially evangelical astronomer, and uh, see how you uh, respond to that. The first temptation is what I call the temptation to deny. There are people in this room who are saying, you know, okay, so America's not what it was uh, two decades or certainly 200 years ago, but that's what we call progress. Things are moving, things are changing, but this is not that big a deal. I can't believe that they drugged this guy in here to talk about the changes in America and holy living in modern America when, you know, if we just get the right folks elected, everything's going to be okay. Um, that mentality, I think, uh, is akin to the ostrich effect. It's burying our head in the sand and just not recognizing what's really going on. I was teaching, I've been teaching this seminar now for about two years in a variety of settings, camps, and local churches. And I heard this really come to, to the fore just prior to the, the November elections. If we get the right one elected, and believe it or not, there were people on both sides of the political aisle making that point of view. If we get the right person elected, then your seminar is totally irrelevant now. This is just going to happen. This is going to go away. We're going to get back on track and everything's going to be okay. That's a total misunderstanding of what I'm talking about, what I was trying to establish yesterday. What I am talking about is not a political problem. It has political ramifications. It is a spiritual problem. There is a spiritual problem in America. And that spiritual problem is now being driven by the majority. You are not being marginalized because of liberals or conservatives. You are not being marginalized because of Democrats or Republicans. You are being marginalized because of the forces of darkness. You're being marginalized, and I'm being marginalized because I failed to be salt, and I'm being marginalized, I'm convinced, and I'll say more about it as we move along, because that's God's plan for my life in America today. That's a whole heap different than to suggest this is a short-term kind of a thing. Now, uh, Dickerson, in his book, The Great Evangelical Recession, gives a beautiful illustration as an opening of what can happen or what will happen if we continue to deny that there is a real long-term problem. He tells in the book how he bought a condo in Scottsdale, Arizona in 2005 paid $120,000 for a condo, and he said property values in, in Scottsdale are going up very rapidly, and what a great place to take the family on a winter vacation. So he bought this condo on the advice of a financial advisor. It was worth $120,000 in 05. In 07, he had reason to have it appraised, and so the appraisal came in. The condo now was worth $220,000. He made 100,000 bucks. Well, he would have if he sold. He had $100,000 more net worth in just two years as a result of owning this condo. And he said, how smart I am. How bright I am. 
I invested in a condo that is just a gold mine. Isn't this wonderful? And one of his financial advisors said, John, I recommend you sell the condo in Scottsdale. He said, what? You've got to be kidding. That's the best investment I got. There's no way I'm selling the condo in Scottsdale. But his financial advisor persisted. He said, look, John, we're in a housing bubble. It's going to crash. And when it does, vacation property like Scottsdale are the, not what you want to be holding. This is not going to work. John buried his head in the sand. He yielded to the temptation to deny. He said, nah, this is a great investment. Then many of you in this room know what happened in 2008. On paper, a lot of us lost some dollars in 2008. Some of you perhaps lost some real dollars in 2008. John said, oops, probably should have sold my condo. So he tried. <laughs> and the realtors in Scottsdale laughed. We don't have a place for your condo. We've got a whole bunch of condos to sell, and nobody's buying. They wouldn't even list the property in 08. In 09, he tried to sell it. In 10, he tried to sell it. Finally, in 2011, he sold his condo for 48900 bucks. In other words, he lost, of his initial investment, lost about half the value, about $50,000. That's the result, in his estimation, of burying your head in the sand. That's the kind of thing that happens to people who yield to the temptation to deny. Something is happening in America. You choose the terms. I may be using the wrong terms in your estimation. I may be using the wrong illustrations. But something is happening in America. And I believe what's happening is God's people, evangelical Christians, are being marginalized. They are rapidly becoming a remnant, continuing to believe what they believe. And the rest of the community is going, who cares what you believe? It's not even relevant. Now, there's another temptation on the flip side, and that is what I call the temptation to dramatize, to make it worse than it is. To go, oh my goodness, the sky is falling. This is awful. Everything, we are under persecution. I don't even like that word persecution with regard to what we're talking about. The Nyquist book that I recommended to you, J. Paul Nyquist's book is excellent, excellent with regard to what's happening, but I object his use of language. He says we're being persecuted. And I, I think that's not only in, imprecise language, I think it's language that is unfair to people in the world who really are being persecuted. Yes. Let me give you a, a, a series of examples. In North Korea, a young man, 17 years old, came home from a day of working in the field. His mother could tell by the look on his face that something terrible had happened, and she asked him about it. He revealed that while he and his friend were working in the fields, the soldiers came, and they took his friend to the edge of the field, and they said, we understand that you are naming the name of Jesus Christ. We give you an opportunity to denounce Jesus Christ. And the friend refused to do that. And before his very eyes, his friend was shot to death at the edge of the field because he refused to denounce the name of Jesus. That's persecution. In Pakistan, this young lady, her name is Tara, and Tara was brutally, savagely beaten by her older brothers while her father looked on and supervised. Twelve years old, her crime, she refused 
a, an arranged marriage with a Muslim man and told her daddy she had heard about Jesus and she wanted before she set the pattern for her life to find out more about Jesus. That curiosity prompted the beating that nearly cost Tara her life in Pakistan. In Indonesia, a pastor, he's called Pastor Fritz. Pastor Fritz was working at the church one night and a mob, an angry mob, came to the church. They tore out all the furniture in the church, the pews, the pulpit, the altar, and started a huge bonfire in the, in the lot beside the church. And then as the mob's anger intensified, Pastor Fritz was bound and tossed into the bonfire as it burned. Two hours later, Fritz walked into town, loose in the same clothes and without even the smell of smoke. <laughs> I get those three accounts from a book called The Edge, hang on, it's by the Voice of the Martyrs, Extreme Devotion, Extreme Devotion, and it's uh, by the Voice of the Martyrs. That's persecution. And I submit it to you this way. It indicates what is happening in other parts of the world and what God is doing in response in the case of Pastor Fritz. What you and I are experiencing is not persecution. Let's not over-dramatize it. I pray to God that it never becomes persecution. I don't know where it's going for sure. And we'll say more about that as we move along. But this I know you are not being persecuted like these folks are being persecuted. That's still not legal in America, no matter what you believe. And so I'm just, I just want to suggest that we not get carried away with over-dramatizing what's happening. Let's talk about this problem, this movement, this, this marginalization uh, in correct terms and in rational terms and think about what to do. A third temptation and this one will be a little more challenging, I think, for some of you, but I need to lay it out there. It's what God has given me. It's what I call the temptation to defy. Uh, I, have, I have done this seminar in churches where people stand up at the beginning of the second day and give a testimony. They're not doing this to me. I know my rights. I'm an American. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And this is what happened in my workplace, but I'm taking a stand. This is not going to... And I remember one guy who was in Shiloh area in Ohio who stood up after one of those testimonies and he said, you demonstrate that you know American history and government very well, but do you know the scripture as well? I mean, that was bold. I was so grateful that he did it and I didn't have to. I would have done a little more reserved than that. But anyway, there's this, there's this temptation to act like this little guy whose mama said, go sit in a chair till you learn how to act. And 20 minutes later, she said, Kevin, have you learned from your mistakes? And Kevin said, nope, no different. She said, how can that be? Have you not been thinking about what you did? He said, yep, but while I've been sitting on the outside, I've been standing up on the inside. Well, that's kind of the way a lot of evangelicals are as this marginalization continues to take place. They're looking for trouble. They're packing for trouble. They're going to they're straighten out these people who are trying to move us to the fringes. They're not going to be a remnant. They're going to be God's person right in the middle. We know our rights. God ordained America. It's different for us. I want to submit to you that we need to take a more careful look. In 586 B.C., 
Jerusalem fell to the Babylonians. Jerusalem had been under siege for 11 years. And finally in 586, she fell. The king was taken to Babylon. He was forced to watch as his sons were executed. And then his eyes were poked out. The last thing he saw was the execution of his children. The Babylonians pillaged, they burned, they raped, they sacked Jerusalem. The city was totally destroyed. And then the Babylonians took the best and the brightest, folks that had all kinds of potential and promise, and they took them back home with them, a forced march of some 700 miles in bonds. And they took these young guys, folks like Daniel, folks who came to be known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they put them in a reorientation program. They taught them the ways of the Babylonians. They taught them how things worked in Babylon. And their idea was to give them positions as high-level bureaucrats, to put them in charge of of little pieces of the government to use them as kind of high-level slaves, if you will. These were guys who had been at the very heart of thought in Israel. Do you see the parallel? They had been, they were the movers and shakers. They and their families were the people who decided what happened in Israel. And now, all of a sudden, they're pushed to the edges. And they get authority when the king says they get authority. They eat what the king says they'll eat. They live like the king says they shall live. The Bible refers to them as the remnant, the Babylonian remnant. They are people who are moved to the fringes, to the margins, forced to live in Babylon and forced to do as the king says. In Jeremiah chapter 27, if you want to turn there with me, I'm going to read beginning in verse 8. In Jeremiah chapter 27, Jeremiah, by the way, we're going to look at him a couple of times. He is the prophet, the, the real honest-to-goodness God prophet during this time of captivity, during the time of the remnant. And so he gives us keen insights into what's really going on. And God spoke to Jeremiah about this, this marginalization, about the people that are a remnant. If any nation or kingdom will not serve Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and put its neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon, this is God talking now, I will punish that nation with the sword, with famine and with pestilence, declares the Lord, until I have consumed it by his hand. So don't listen to your prophets, your diviners, your dreamers, your fortune tellers, your sorcerers who are saying to you, you don't have to serve the king of Babylon. For it's a lie. And they're prophesying to you with the result that you'll be removed far from your land and I will drive you out and you will perish. But listen to the Listen to the backdoor good news. 
But any nation that will bring its neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon and serve him, I'll leave on its own to work and to dwell there, declares the Lord. Here's the picture. The marginalization of the people of Israel into Babylon, the creation of a remnant, it's clear from the prophet Jeremiah, was God's plan. God has a plan for this nation. And it may be vastly different than the plan that you have been taught or have experienced over the last hundred years. This change that's taking place is not outside the will and the sovereignty of God. And just as certainly as God spoke to the people of Babylon and said, you go under Nebuchadnezzar, I believe God is speaking to the people of America and saying, you're going to become a remnant. I encouraged you yesterday to pray for revival. I continue to pray with you for revival. Nothing I would like better than to be wrong about this. But I think the reality is the die is cast. And part of my purpose, part of why I'm here, part of why I've done this seminar is that I believe God is saying to me that part of my responsibility is to get his people ready for a new way of living. We are, we are about to become a minority. And if you continue to do things the way you've always done them, you're not going to get the kind of results you want. Now, you can argue the point. We can debate it. I can stand it. I want you to know that these folks that I have recommended in terms of their reading are saying very, very similar things. It's not just me uh, out of the blue. Although, if it was, I'd still say it because I've learned that it's hard to be a prophet and be popular all at the same time. And I choose to be a prophet. I believe the prophecy is this. God is leading us to a new way of living and we will become a remnant. So when we defy and when we shake our fist and say, I'm not going, you're not moving me, I'm not giving up, I got rights, then I believe God is saying to us, you're shaking your fist in the face of an almighty God all kinds of ramifications, and you'll have ample opportunity as we look at case studies after each one of the sessions to say, wait a minute, Nat, that's absurd. But I would only appeal to you at this moment to prayerfully consider the possibility that the shift that's taking place is something that God has planned for his people, and he's calling us to get ready. Fourth is the temptation to despair. Oh, woe is me. This guy's saying that America's going to be fundamentally changed and that I'm never going to be in charge again. That my age of having rights and being number one is over. And for many of us, that leads to great tragedy and despair. I have to tell you that of all the temptations that we're talking about this morning, this one is the greatest for me. My personality is such that I have to battle discouragement and depression all the time. Don't ask Nancy about it. She might tell you more than I want you to know. 
but it's true. I have to battle all the time. And when I look at this big picture, the, the, the most prevalent temptation for me is the temptation to despair. Oh my goodness, what, what's got, what does this mean for my kids? What does this mean for my grandkids? What does this mean for great-grandchildren who aren't even born yet? And when I watch the nightly news, I can despair even greater. Uh, I have taken, I, and you, know, you can argue with this, I'm totally uninformed, I guess, these days. I asked my dad on the phone the other day, Any, anything happened in the world that I need to know? And he gave me some of the stuff that was happening politically. But I, I have taken to, I, don't, I can't watch the nightly news. I find it just too depressing, too discouraging, uh, too despair-producing. And I submit to you that that's not what God wants for us. If I'm right that the sovereign God is speaking to America like he spoke to Israel just prior to the Babylonian captivity, i.e. Jeremiah, then my despair is to despair at what God has, has rendered for me and for my family and for my nation. A sovereign God has decided, then who am I? to despair at what he's saying. Instead, I submit to you that the Bible teaches us to rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all, for the Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds. In Christ Jesus. Do you hear the good news that Paul spoke even in the midst of his affliction, even in the midst of his marginalization, even in the midst of him being pushed to the edges and to the fringes because he had become a Christian on the road to Damascus? The Bible says that our hope is built on Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ is Lord, even if Christianity is not prominent and paramount in America. And let us not forget that. I pleaded with God not to do this kind of teaching, this seminar, this five studies, because of the despair that it brings to my heart. And God gave me that verse and others like it to say it's not cause for despair, it's cause for great celebration because I love my church in America and I'm going to use my church in America and the faithful of my church in America to become the remnant that I need. Listen to this. Out of a remnant, uh, the few that are left, after the sacking of Jerusalem. Out of that remnant, God brought forth new life. It took 70 years. Many of us in this room are not going to see it. Most of us in this room are not going to experience it if it takes that long. But God is going to bring new life if we are faithful. And so let us not despair. Let us not yield to the temptation to despair. I want to suggest to you, fifth, there's a temptation to deal. And this is the most dangerous of all the temptations. There are those who look around and say, well, I've been in the church, I'm a Christian, but, you know, we're not in authority anymore. And, you know, the word, the scripture, well, you've got to interpret it now in a new way because this is a new generation. And it may have said that to those people, but, you know, this is 18th century stuff you're talking about. And this is a new day. And so we've got to interpret it a different way. And I believe what that is, is a, is a temptation to deal with the current, uh, the current uh, uh, leadership, the people who are in power, the current power structure, 
it's a temptation to deal with the current power structure and say, let me have just a little bit of authority. Let me have just a little bit of power and I'll give up on this part of what I believe or I'll give up on that part. Have you ever watched that TV show, Let's Make a Deal? You know, they pick a case. I think based on the appearance of the young lady that's holding the case, but I'm not sure how you pick them. Anyway, they pick this case, and every time you pick a case, you got a little bit of money, and then people get a, a good hunk of money. They got 50000 or or 100000 and this guy who's off at the side said, let's make a deal. I'll tell you what, I'll buy those last cases. You might get a million dollars, but you might get nothing, and so let me just deal with you. And the enemy is causing believers all across America to deal. To say, we'll give that up and we'll give this up and we'll go this far, but not that far. Just a little bit further. You can push us a little bit more because we just want to play. We want to be in the game. We want to be mainstream again. We don't want to be marginalized. I don't want to be a remnant. Please, let's just make a deal. When I was a student at Asbury Theological Seminary, way back in the dark ages, Noah and I were classmates, by the way. And one day, Noah and I went to class, and there was an old guy who was the professor, and he said to us, class today will be very brief. My students still love that kind of an announcement. Class today will be very brief, and he went on to say, because I have a very difficult assignment for you. I want you to make a list of the things you would be willing to die for. Class dismissed. Let me tell you, if you take an assignment like that seriously, you spend a lot of hours on a short list. Think about that. I had a mama came and talked to me earlier about some of the things I said yesterday and about her children. She said, I'm willing to die for them. And I believe she meant it. Mamas know what I'm talking about. But what's on your list? Or let me phrase it another way. What are the absolute non-negotiables? What is it that you believe? It doesn't make any difference what they do to you or where they put you, you will not recant. This I believe, I'm not giving it up. Now I submit to you men and women that it's time for us to make that list. I don't have the authority to give assignments like I do in some of my classes. But if I did, I'd say, here's your assignment. Make a list of the things you'd be willing to die for. Make a list of your absolute non-negotiables. List of the things you're going to believe, no matter what the culture believes. List of the things that you will live by, not just articulate, no matter what happens in America. Because the day may come when the marginalization of this remnant that is before me is indeed persecuted. I've tried to be clear. I don't think we're there yet. But it could happen. What do you believe 
that will not be compromised no matter what happens. If God help us, we should begin to see stories from the United States in the Voice of the Martyrs books. What do you believe? The temptation to deal when others have power and authority over us is, is profound but it's the most dangerous of all these temptations. Webster's Dictionary says that a temptation is a strong urge or a desire, listen to the words, to do something unwise. Given what we face just now, to deny that there's a problem, that's unwise. To over-dramatize the problem, and identify it in ways that doesn't need to be identified, that's unwise. I believe it's unwise to defy those that are in authority and see what's going to happen on my watch. I believe it's unwise to despair and to say, oh, me, the sky is falling. And I believe it's unwise to deal with the popular culture. What I'd like for you to do is to share with us, uh, in fact, I'd, I'd like to hear five testimonies, if we could. I'd like to hear one person who say about each of these, that's my greatest temptation in the midst of what's happening. I see myself in what you were talking about there. Uh, somebody share with us, and by the way, uh, Kevin's got a microphone and we're recording, so we need, we need you to wait till he gets the microphone under your nose. Put it under that dude's nose right back there that I don't know. Yeah, he wants to talk. This really hits close to home for me, Doctor, because uh, I remember even being here in Bayshore in the late 70s, I was in despair for the status of our culture. It had fallen so far, the way people dressed and everything. And I was entering into uh, an er uh, a time of Christian education. I'd been in public education. And as a young single guy, my students asked me at a, a school near Midland, they said, uh, Mr. Batterby, why, why do you not need to drink and smoke and party to have a good time? Why do you think that's not necessary? Why don't you like that? And I, a very generic reply, uh, you know, I have a very full life. I love what I'm doing. I love teaching, coaching. I love, uh, you know, going to church. And I, I, I just don't have a need to do those other things to feel fulfilled. And uh, shortly after that, I got called in the principal's office. And by the end of the school year, I was back home in Fairgrove, which was part of God's plan. But to make a long story shorter, um, I despaired for our culture. Yeah. And then came Ronald Reagan, and I went into Christian education. Those secular principals recommended that I go into Christian education. Yeah. A parent had complained because I mentioned God. And everybody thought it was so cool to keep God out of the public schools in the 70s, and uh, that's the route that I ended up taking. Well, Reagan came into office, I was all excited because I could do church 
like I'd always done church. All of a sudden, the women's clothes, the dresses were down below the knees. That was so cool. I was even in a Pentecostal setting at that time, seeking God with all my heart. And I was so excited. And then the despair came back. Yeah. In the last five years, I had read uh, Alan Bloom, The Closing of the American Mind. Yeah. I had been a real fan of the Shavers, Francis. Uh, yeah. I saw all that prophecy. I, too, have the gift of prophecy. Every test I ever take, it's always prophecy and exhortation right at the top of the giftedness list. And uh, I was in despair. And then a year ago, who would have believed that we'd have a Supreme Court justice that's got conservative remnant values? Who would have believed we got seven people in the president's cabinet with the vice president leading the Bible study every week to seek holiness, to seek God's will for this country? Who would have believed all this would take place? And uh, all of a sudden, I'm very excited about what's taking place. You'll get over but, it. But, but I am not going to make the same mistake. And I encourage everybody, now listen don't to what he just says. think you can do church like you always did church. Right. Because the culture is against us, and one man doesn't make a difference. But when all they can have an impact, when Franklin Graham went to every state in the country right. and to the Capitol and never preached or said any particular candidate, but said, seek God with all your heart for the country to pray and then get involved. Thank you. Very good. But that's yeah. it. It is, you know, his despairing and the ups and downs of his despairing. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I, what I hear you saying is because you saw it as a political problem and it's not, and, and I heard his conclusion, it's not a political problem. It's a spiritual problem. And so, yeah. Okay, despair's off the table because I don't want to hear any more despair. It causes me to go back to my euphoria when uh, Ronald Reagan was president. I had to grow up and had to learn it's not about politics. It's a, different, it's a different kind of matter. But we've got four other temptations. Temptation to deny, dramatize, despair, uh, 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 defy, or deal. What's a, what's a great temptation for you? Who would speak to one of those? Yes, right up right here in a blue shirt. Help us, please, Tim. Well, I've been guilty of uh, denying. Uh, as I've seen what's happening, I have not considered that this is the will of God. I've thought it was the devil all along. You're in good company. I've had some of them walk out on me at that point, frankly. But and uh, as we give Bibles to children through the Gideons, I see that they deny, they marginalize us out onto the sidewalk, and I've never considered that that was not the devil. I, I've only thought that that's what it was. Yeah. But this could be God's plan for our country. Good. That's deny. Dramatize, defy. What's your great temptation? I suppose, I suppose mine might be to dramatize because um, I'm so excited about what God is doing all over, all over the world. And I believe we as the bride of Christ, we're just in an exceptional time. And so I think I'm eager for the end. But bottom line, and so I dramatize what uh, might be happening. But what we 
must be is the bride wholly in love with the groom. And he knows when he's coming and we don't. <laughs> I just want him to come. <laughs> yeah. One more. Somebody tell us how this stuff strikes you or it's all right to argue with me. He's going to lose a lot of weight <laughs> unless he keeps eating in the cafeteria. I don't know which one this would be, but what I see in my family is that the traditional values of, um, that I was raised in the church with of uh, following what the word says about not over drinking or drinking or being drunk is not being followed by my family's children. Yeah. Yeah. They're totally walking, not, I won't say everyone, but probably 50% are walking the other way of the world. And I don't know if that's making a deal with the world or if it's uh, defying. Yeah, okay. I don't know. I think it probably comes under one of those. But, but they're, not, they're not living the walk. They may say they're Christians, but they're not living the walk. Yeah. This, this uh, temptation to compromise and to be like the world is a, is a powerful, powerful temptation. And uh, I, I, th I think it's as dangerous as the others, perhaps more so. I want to I introduce a, a case. It's on page 17 in, in your booklet. And uh, it's the case of uh, Martin Gaskell. Let me just introduce it, and then I want you to work on it together just a little bit. I want to hear what you all think in light of what we've been saying. Martin Gaskell is an astronomer who specializes in black holes. Uh, he fell in one. <laughs> he has a PhD from the University of California, Santa Cruz, and he's written 28 refereed papers. That, that may not mean anything to non-academics, but that's a bunch. Well, what that means is 28 publications in journals where his peers, other professionals, have said, yes, this ought to be published, this is worthy. I've had a pretty good academic career and I've had three. Uh, that's, you know, this is phenomenal. This, guy's, this guy is well-respected, brilliant. He's spoken at 55 conference proceedings and his claim to fame was that he oversaw the design and construction operation of an observatory at the University of Nebraska at Lincoln. So when the University of Kentucky decided to build an observatory, Martin Gaskell was on their radar as one of the people that they wanted to talk to uh, about uh, the head of the observatory. In fact, one person on the search committee said he was the most experienced candidate. Uh, he was told on a Friday that uh, his uh, hiring was imminent. Had to get approval from some of the but everything looked all right, it was going to happen. Then somebody on the search committee uh, did a little research online about Martin Gaskell. It's just kind of the way you do it these days. And they found this article that I alluded to earlier called Modern Astronomy, the Bible, and Creation. Uh, it's one of those scholarly articles that Gaskell wrote. And as near as I can understand it, I think what he's saying in this article is there's nothing inconsistent about creation and astronomy, that it's possible for us to think about the way the universe is made and the way we know it operates as being created by a higher power. That's basically what he's writing in this, in this article. But somebody on the search committee said that they had found this article and 
Martin Gaskell was potentially evangelical. Horror of horrors. And so uh, the article was disseminated to other members of the search committee and the offer to Martin Gaskell to become the head of the observatory at, East, at, at University of Kentucky was received. Uh, a much less, and by the way, this is not just my pejorative kind of overview of this, both the University of Kentucky and Gaskell say that a much less qualified person was given the position. Even the University of Kentucky says, oh yeah, that person is not near as qualified. Uh, but they hired someone else, and Martin Gaskell filed suit. He went to court, and this thing wound through the courts, and before uh, we finish, I'll tell you uh, the, the results of that case, but here's what I'd like for you to sort out in the case of the potentially evangelical astronomer. If you were Martin Gaskell and lost the job, which of the five temptations that we've talked about are the hardest for you to resist? What, what are you thinking? Can you put yourself in that place? Maybe some of you can. Maybe you weren't set up to be the uh, astronomer at UK but you did have a position that you lost and you think you lost because of your religious beliefs. What I'd like for you to do, you found some folks yesterday to kind of get together with. I'd like for you to get in a group of five, that's an ideal number, but you know, work it out, three, four, five people, and just talk about that for a little bit. If you were Martin Gaskell, what is the greatest of these temptations for you to deal with? And then we're going to ask Kevin to bring the mic to several groups. I want to hear what your groups are saying. Would you do that? Let's spend about uh, uh, five minutes, Max, five minutes in your group. Which of these temptations is toughest, Martin? Together again, here's what I'd like to do. I'm interested in what you think about Martin Gaskell's problem, and it'll help us to kind of analyze these temptations that we've been looking at. So who's in a group? that thinks uh, Gaskell's greatest temptation when this happened was the temptation to deny it. There's not a problem. Your group thinks it's a temptation to deny it. Give him a mic, or would you speak for him, for us? Can you do that? Yeah. Uh, excuse me, that was defy. Ah, defy, defy. now we, that I'm coming we, to, we, we, yeah. We Anybody whose group said no, that Gaskell just denies that there's a problem, this is, now I don't think so. I mean, once you get into that kind of a situation, you know that something's happening. You know that, that, how about the temptation to dramatize? No, you didn't go there either? I can kind of see a little bit, yeah. I mean, it's just a job, he's already got a good one. I, I mean, you know, I can see how he could get into, oh wow, this is terrible, you know, the, the whole world's coming to an end kind of thing. Uh, now, the, the temptation to defy. This is where it gets interesting. Who wants to talk about it? Temptation to defy. Your group talked about it, did they not? Back here's one that's got his voice. Well, our group had three people in it, and one person said dramatize, one person said defy, and one person said despair. Okay. So, but since I'm the one who said defy, I guess I'll speak to this Speak one. to it for him. Uh, so, sometimes can be a little bit hot-headed. I think in this scenario, this would be a situation where I would get angry, I would be upset, I'd be... I've got constitutional rights. I've got a First Amendment that protects me. Um, I, I ought to be able to have this belief system and still hold a job that I believe that are, that they're congruent. 
if my beliefs of, uh, are that these two things are congruent, then I should be able to do this. And so yeah. I would be upset, I would be angry, and I would try to defy the situation. Uh, as, a, as one that may have a tendency to yield to the temptation to defy, uh, would you have sued? Probably. Probably. No? How many think Gasco should have filed suit on this matter? How, how many say he should not? Uh, would one on each side speak to us? I'm sorry, me. You, you didn't argue with me last time, so you this, speak. This really got me because we had, we had a situation here in Michigan at the University of Michigan where the most qualified candidates were denied in going into medical school because of quotas that had to be met with minorities. And it was just ridiculous. And finally, one of the denied candidates took it to court. And I really love this because I love Dr. Martin Luther King. And he said, every man and woman should be judged according to the content of their character, not the color of their skin. Right. And I really was excited because the results were interesting. I shared that the closing of the American mind when Alan Bloom had a big impact on my life as a young person. Mm -hmm. And that was a big part of the closing of the American mind. It was. Was that the minorities were being, people that were not qualified were being put in positions of authority. So but anyway, the results were great. And we had a little discussion here too because if you're going to be martyred for Christ, the enemy, the people that represent the enemy, have to know what they're doing is wrong. And okay. if we don't stand for truth and justice according to God's word in our culture, some of us are going to be thrown in jail. Some of us may lose whatever we have, but we must stand for what's right. And I, I like defiance in a godly, caring, loving way because your compassion should be for the souls of right. those who are persecuting right. you. So, so you're, you're speaking for Gaskell filing suit. He should have done it. But I had some folks who said, no, I don't, I don't agree with that. Who will speak? Go ahead. You pick them. I get the most steps in this way. Well, my husband, who is not here right this second, is the one who, who made a point. Um, you know, we don't believe in suing. But on the other hand, in changing our way of thought in terms of what, how the culture now is seeing things, filing suit, um, everybody takes notice. And so um, it's not so much about the money. And if the stand, I don't know how he filed suit, if it was an angry defiance, or if it was simply um, this is the process that people need to take notice in order to see that God um, is important and it was a, alive. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if it answers your question, but just for information purposes, it was a, a religious freedom suit. Uh, he argued that he had been denied this position on the basis of his faith, uh, and that was the basis of the suit. University of Kentucky said, no, you were denied the position, but it had nothing to do with Christian faith. We know you're the best qualified, but if you believe 
some of this stuff about creationism, then we have some academic questions about whether we want you teaching our kids or not. Yeah. Um, our, our group kind of went along with what Diane had to say is, um, you know, it, it's kind of individually prompted based on the Lord, what the Lord's speaking to you to do. Um, maybe sometimes the Lord wants you to defy and like Diane said, stand up and take notice because that's when our culture and that's how we respond. It does seem like there's a lot of people that sue and it's not about the money, but it, he is an evangelical Christian and standing for Christianity when he's suing. But there's other times the Lord says, oh, no, you're going to close your mouth and you're going to walk away. And then as a result of that, they will see what has happened as a result of the choice. So you could deal with, okay, you know, we're going to walk away. This, I mean, you could dramatize. I mean, you could go through all of this, but I think it's a case-to-case -case or individual-to-individual -individual what the Lord wants you to do in the situation. And um, Karen, <laughs> Karen brought up a good point. Do you want to say it, Karen, about the oh. Um, well, because the ramifications, is there okay, um, in, in willing to stand, even there, if there was a, going to be a financial burden if he were to lose, you know what I mean? She said there was like he was willing to go at all costs yeah. because he was going to have to consume court costs himself if he lost. Okay. So she said that's a point too, let, but I don't know. Let me let me see if I can summarize some things, wrap up. It's time for us to quit anyway. But here here's what I want to say. I, I'm not yet ready to say whether Gaskell should have filed suit or not. And I'll tell you why. Uh, because I don't know what, what he might have been led to do in the privacy of his own prayer closet. So if Martin Gaskell is a member of my church and he files this suit, I'm going to be as supportive as I possibly can of this man, a brother, in a very difficult situation. If, on the other hand, he came to me and said, I'm not hearing from the Lord, I don't know what I ought to do, what do you think? I would advise that he not file suit, and I'll tell you why. Because we have come through the period of time when you could file that kind of a suit, and you know what's going to happen because we were mainstream. But we're not mainstream anymore. That's my point. We are marginalized. It didn't remind Didn't Jeremiah teach us that we need to go quietly into our exile? That's a hard lesson. That's a hard teaching. But it is the transition of thinking that I, I want to at least put in front of you and ask you to think about. Five years this case went through the courts. And finally, uh, they agreed to settle. Martin Gaskell got $125,000. Now, I know in this kind of a, uh, uh, an audience, there are going to be some folks who say, wow, that's a bunch of money. Uh, it was a percent, an undisclosed percentage of the increase that he would have realized had he had the job for those five years. Uh, we don't even know what, what percentage. Uh, it, by the time his attorneys got done with it, I submit to you it was a pittance. I, I know for some of you, and some of you are nodding because you are my age and older and know it's not a lot of money, but for some of us, uh, for some of the folks in the room, that sounds like a boatload of money. In effect, in effect, it appears that Gaskell just got off of it, just let it go. They agreed to settle. 
without the University of Kentucky admitting any wrongdoing. Kentucky said that they had not hired Gaskell uh, because of the article, they admit that, but they said they were concerned that the article, not because of, of, had a, of its religious nature, but because the article would affect his teaching and scholarship. And so, you know, you sort it out. I'm inclined to think as we move towards our exile that we need to take a more and more careful look at filing suit for people who say you're going into exile. And we'll speak more to that kind of notion uh, tomorrow. What we want to do is to look at the strategies of the remnant. They did make a difference. They made a powerful difference in Babylon. But they used strategies that are much different than the strategies that we have used. They didn't go to court. It wouldn't have done them a bit of good. And so what I'd like for you to do, you already have one assignment, the list of the things you'd be willing to die for or your bottom line kind of list. Be working on that, but if you find time, I'd also love for you to read the first chapter of Daniel. That'll be our text tomorrow as we look at the strategies of the remnant. Father, thank you for these folks. Thank you for their willingness to share from their hearts uh, on a topic that is very difficult for us. We continue to pray that you might bring renewal and revival across this land. I pray that everything that I have been saying in this day, these days, and in this week might become totally irrelevant because of the revival that sweeps across America. But in the case, Lord, in the, in the possibility uh, that we are to become exiled and to become a remnant in our own land, then I pray that you would give us great wisdom as we study together and learn together. Thank you for these folks. Bless our afternoon. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, folks. I've got resources here if you're interested in the things that I'm reading about this topic or my books back there are a different matter.